Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 31st of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The British Army's brutal murder of 13 people on the 30th of January 1972 and a 14th person who died later was remembered vividly in Derry yesterday. In marking the events of Bloody Sunday, we are given a unique opportunity to recognise and respond to some of the most painful facts in our history, atrocities inflicted on communities, including state violence. Such a process of ethical remembering is the very antithesis of any other forms of remembering which would seek to facilitate or encourage any kind of conscious or unconscious amnesia as to persons or events. President Michael D. Higgins referring there to the amnesia of the British government reflected in a whitewash of state-sponsored murder through the Widgery Tribunal. Fifty years on, uh, the people of Derry will never forget. Your use of memory, of recognition of fact and transaction of difference, or construction of intention is a potential path to an inclusive healing and ethical remembrance. It is one that allows for the necessity that must never be avoided of coming to terms with recalled outrage. Transacting that outrage is an empowerment that may even prove to be emancipatory of grief. Emancipatory in the face of cover-up. Amnesia, however, it is based. And it is sometimes feigned or masked is amoral, denying as it does those affected by painful historical events of any recognition of their losses or the right to have memories of those losses. President Michael D. Higgins addressing uh, the people of uh, Derry on uh, the 50th anniversary of one of the worst atrocities in Irish history. The 30th of January 1972 will live on in our collective memory as will your efforts of vindication of the truth We honour the morality of that memory today. We honour the men who died. 
Will there ever be justice for the Bloody Sunday families? Let's talk about that now with uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who's on uh, the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you for joining us uh, this morning. I I think it's clear, and I think it's clear that there's a lot of concern in Derry and elsewhere that there will never be justice, certainly not if uh, the British government goes ahead with implementing its proposed amnesty. Well, look, I I think yesterday's commemoration, um, it was very poignant, but it it was a very difficult day for so many families. Just because this happened 50 years ago, I don't think it's any less painful for those families and and for uh, the newer generation, so to speak. Um, What's very clear from the Irish government's point of view is that we will continue to and want to ensure that justice is done for those individuals who were killed. These were unarmed civilians. Uh, these were people who were shot at and killed while protesting peacefully. Um, and you mentioned the number of reports and the number of inquiries that have happened over the years. What they've clearly found in the most recent several reports have found is that these individuals were unarmed um, and what happened was an atrocity. Uh, the legislation that you've referred to is legislation that is currently going through the Parliament in the UK, which would provide a time limit essentially to, to anything that happened prior to ninety eight and would essentially give an amnesty not just to those who were responsible for Bloody Sunday, but also atrocities that were committed um, throughout the Troubles. And it's not something that this Irish government supports. It's not something that any of the parties in the North support either. And it's not in spirit with the Good Friday Agreement, where we have very clearly said that anything that we do moving forward, responding to the Troubles, any of the atrocities that happened, would have to be done in cooperation and with the full support of all governments involved here. So it's very difficult. Mm. Um, We need to make sure that these families, that justice is done for them and for their loved ones. Um, And I think what was very clear from any of the commentary while I wasn't in Derry yesterday, I, I, like you and many others, listened to so many people speaking about this. And what's clear is that while people have moved on in age and while, you know, family members have passed away, the newer generation of those impacted our Bloody Sunday will not rest until until justice is found and we need to work with them and, and to support them in their quest. Mm, yeah, uh, the 13 to 14 people who uh, lost their lives as a result of what happened that day will never be forgotten. But uh, if the British intention to introduce an amnesty is in breach of the Good Friday Agreement, what does that mean? Well, I, I think it has quite significant implications um, if any element of the Good Friday Agreement is breached. Uh, obviously, there is a huge loss in confidence and, and in, uh, I think, the spirit of, of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, the, the, the relationships that have been built up and evolved in recent years, I think it has been very positive, the work that has been done. But this, I think, would set us back enormously um, so, you know, there's been a lot of engagement. I myself even attended a meeting with Minister Coveney in London at the beginning of December. We spoke with our UK colleagues and counterparts. We made it very clear that the, that the Irish government does not support this legislation, nor will we ever, um, and that this needs to be uh, reflected upon if legislation is going through the, the Parliament. So, you know, it hasn't been taken back or it hasn't been stopped. At the same time, I do hope that our UK colleagues will listen to us, will continue to engage with us, um, there are mechanisms put in place through the Good Friday Agreement to deal with and to respond to issues of the past, to the troubles, uh, and we need to make sure that none of us divert from those or if there are any changes, that it's with the full support of all governments. So, mm. you know, I can't be any clearer here. We do not support this legislation. It would essentially provide an amnesty, not just 
for this particular mm. uh, atrocity or incident. But you know, there, there were there were atrocities on both the Republican yeah. and Loyalist side over the years, uh, and we need to make sure that we can respond to and, and that justice is done for many others as well. And there is perhaps a, a difference with Bloody Sunday in uh, that the Savile report uh, that you mentioned uh, led uh, to uh, an apology uh, to the families, indeed uh, to. Uh, all of us uh, from uh, the British government uh, and it would make uh, this uh, this amnesty if it was to be introduced it would make David Cameron's apology seem pretty mealy-mouthed wouldn't it? Well, I think what was so significant about the report itself and the subsequent apology by the then Prime Minister David Cameron on behalf of the Mm. UK government, um, it clearly said that the previous reports were incorrect. I mean, we we had an initial report which suggested that people were armed, that there had been bombs thrown. Uh, None of this was true. These were unarmed civilians who were killed. And David Cameron very clearly apologised for what happened. Mm. Legislation then bringing forward essentially an amnesty um, would ensure that those who were unlawfully killed, that justice was not served. But the uh, British Prime Minister's apology uh, recognised that innocent civilians, innocent unarmed civilians, were murdered by British soldiers, didn't it? it well, it acknowledged that they were unlawfully mm. killed, so I you, yeah. appreciate that I, I, I perhaps, while some of these may still potentially go to a court of law, I, I won't use uh, that same terminology, but they were unlawfully killed. They were okay. unarmed and they were shot at and they were killed. Okay, well, that, would, we, that would mean murder to most people. But if they were un, if unarmed civilians were unlawfully killed by members of the British Army uh, and the British government recognises that, if the British government is giving an amnesty to those murderers, uh, then there's other questions that have to be asked. Are there not, Minister, such as uh, the government's complicity in that crime? Was it state-sponsored murder? Well, they contradict each other, essentially. They are not compatible. The Prime Minister's, the then Prime Minister's apology is not compatible with, or the now legislation is not compatible with the apology. The apology very clearly recognises that there were wrongs, um, that there was an injustice, that people were wronged here, um, and that there was a responsibility um, from the British side to, to, to acknowledge that, and that there could potentially be pathways for justice for those families, for those victims, those and impacted by this, an amnesty works in contrary to that. Mm. But, also but do you do do you agree that that that, that pro- do you agree, Minister, that proposing such a, an amnesty begs questions about complicity? Well, I, I think we need to question why this legislation has been brought forward. There has to always be a path for justice to those who are wronged, um, and there was a very clear path set out through the Good Friday Agreement. So I don't support this, nor does anybody in my government support this legislation because it does not create a pathway. It does not acknowledge the apology that was given by David Cameron, which was only 10 years ago. It's not that long ago. It was only 10 years ago. Uh, and so we will we will not support it and we will make it very clear and continue to make it clear to our colleagues that this is not in the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement and it certainly will not create a pathway for, for justice. And that is, that is our sole objective here, to support these families, to work with the the victim families and the, the newer generations to make sure that they that they get justice. Okay, and we'll hear many of those people speak, or when they did speak, uh, over the weekend later in uh, the programme uh, today. Uh, let's uh, talk uh, about some other issues, if we can, Minister, because uh, there's obviously uh, been a, a lot of uh, concern uh, about uh, violence against women, uh, and indeed how uh, that quite often uh, has to do with uh, 
sexual assaults. Um, we had a, a survey launched by the Minister for Higher Education, Simon Harris, last week, uh, which indicated uh, how a lot of young people are, are living um, with uh, the fear of sexual uh, harassment, um, sexual assault, violent sex, rape, uh, and so on. While the vast majority of students, uh, the report said, are safe, it certainly is a, a part of life in third level. And you're, you have, uh, together with Minister Harris, launched an online consent hub aimed predominantly at those who are in third level. We have. So the, the consent hub was launched last Friday um, and this really is part of a number of actions that we're undertaking that I'm undertaking as part of supporting a victim's journey. But in response to what you have just outlined there, the fact that we do have an issue in relation to domestic and sexual violence, but in particular and something that really concerns me in the last year, the information that we are seeing and the research that's been undertaken uh, with younger students and younger people shows that younger people um, and young girls in particular at much younger ages are victims of domestic and sexual violence, that they're victims of intimate partner violence as well. Um, So we want to respond to this in as many ways as possible. And the reason that we've developed an online hub, uh, which is an educational mechanism, but a support tool as well, it's to acknowledge that so many young people, they they get their information, they engage with each other online. So it's a very clear and simple website. Um, It's called consenthub.ie if anybody wants to check it and uh, when you go online on the portal it asks you whether you're a young person or a student so whether you're under 17 or over it's for uh, teachers as well as lecturers but also parents and it gives them information about consent what is consent the type of research that's been conducted in recent years but it also is signposting for services if a young person goes online and essentially wants to, to look and see where they can go to if, if they have been a victim of, of some sort of assault or rape. So it's, it's, it's a part of a suite of measures, really, that we're trying to introduce, but in particular raising the issue around consent. What does consent mean? How can you give consent, um, you know, particularly as a young person where, you know, you're experiencing new things for the first time, uh, you need to know what your rights are, and if something goes wrong, that there's somebody there to support you and that there's a system there to support you. Um, What I'll be doing later on this year and actually in the coming weeks is launching a wider awareness campaign around the issue of consent, Uh, not just looking at younger people, but obviously all of society. And that feeds into a whole series of of awareness campaigns that we've been raising to try and make sure that individual victims are aware of their rights, but each and every one of us, that we don't become bystanders, that when we see something happening, that we call it out, when we see a friend in need, that we know how to support them or that we know how to direct them to, to the right place. Um, so it's, it's, it's such a wide and it's such a difficult issue to respond to. Mm. Uh, but we need to start, and I suppose this hub that we launched on Friday is is one of a, a number of um, mechanisms and support tools that we're, we're putting in place to work with young people. OK, and we hope that it goes some way to helping young people uh, in every sense uh, of uh, the problem. Uh, another problem uh, that has existed uh, for a couple of decades in this country is uh, the system of direct provision. There's a lot of people who are in this country undocumented, whether they're in direct provision or living in the shadows, uh, a turn of phrase uh, that you've been using uh, recently to uh, describe a, a lot of these people, uh, the end of uh, the shadows. So people sh- should start coming out of the shadows from uh, today onwards and over the course of the next six months have uh, an opportunity to uh, apply for an amnesty that you're offering them, Minister. 
Yes, so I'm really, really pleased to say that as of today, the 31st of January, the undocumented scheme will open and will be open for the next six months. And we've spoken of this many times. And really what I want now is for those people uh, who are living here, who are working here, who are part of our communities, who have found themselves in an undocumented way, either having started off with documents or a permit or a, a visa, or else potentially coming here without one a number of years ago, you can now come forward, you can now put in an application, uh, you can now potentially start yourself on a pathway to have legal access to the labour market and subsequently potentially citizenship. Um, What I'd stress to anybody listening to this or or anybody who might know somebody in their community, um, you do have to fulfil a set criteria. You have to be here for four years or longer in an undocumented way, three years with children, and you do have to have proof so of your identification, be it a passport, be it some form of, of cert. You do have to have proof of residence. So again, perhaps something to show you've been renting or living here, a bank account, something to show where you've been working. And then if you are a family member or you have children, you have to be able to show that relationship. So it could be a marriage cert. It could be, um, again, if children are in school, a letter to say that they've been in school for so long and who their parents are. So... There's a lot of information online again. It's Innis Online, mm. uh, the website available to people, and I'd encourage anyone uh, who's thinking of applying to go online and to look uh, and to make sure that they can get their application together and obviously to, to, to make that application as soon as possible. Yeah, there's a fear, I think, of people exposing themselves to the authorities. Uh, they're in the shadows at the moment, but if uh, they come out uh, and show their face, uh, they may end up being deported. What I would reassure people is if you do have a deportation order against you at the moment, it does not automatically disqualify you. Every individual and every case, be it a family application or an individual applying on their own, there will be a vetting process. And it's important that we do that working with the Gardaí. Um, And if you're found to have or if you do have a criminal, a serious criminal conviction or there is a concern, um, then obviously that has to be taken into account. But if you have a deportation order simply by the fact that you have overstayed your welcome, it does not automatically prevent you from being successful through this scheme. Mm. This is one of the biggest issues here, and we saw this even through COVID-19. People have been afraid to come forward, afraid to get tested, afraid to get their vaccine, afraid that they may be highlighted as being here um, where they shouldn't you know, where where they potentially shouldn't be. But I would ask people to trust us. Um, This is about trying to regularise people's status. It's not trying to catch anybody out. And actually what I've done is not just engage with the community and voluntary sector, but I've also written to relevant ambassadors where we know there's a largely, you know, a large cohort of people here undocumented from those countries and asked those ambassadors and their teams to engage with their communities to encourage them to come forward. Okay, there may be uh, some people who don't understand you or or, or don't understand parts of uh, what uh, this might mean for them. When you say a a serious criminal conviction, Minister, what might that mean? I I take it uh, you wouldn't be talking about somebody who got a a parking fine or or something like that. Uh, But would it uh, be something like uh, a conviction that resulted in a prison sentence? Yes, so somewhere where you have a, a prison sentence, perhaps a serious assault, a sexual assault, um, you know, or, or something which resulted in you doing uh, time in, in, in one of our prisons. What we're not talking about here is, is a minor offence. We're not talking about someone with a, a road traffic, um, you know, 
offence to that extent or where they have a minor offence um, where they have been cautioned for something previously. So, you know, it's where somebody um, has had a serious conviction or where they are potentially a threat to the state and that's something that obviously has to also be considered. So that's why we're working closely with Angarda Siakana. That's why each individual will be vetted. But every case will be taken on a case-by-case basis. So we have uh, an additional number of people, so we've over 25 members of staff who are trained, who are very specific with their, um, their, their, their training in this area and they will be able to look at each individual case They'll be able to assess, obviously, the documentation, but they'll also be able to look at and see whether or not this person poses a threat, whether or not okay. this is somebody that should be should be given essentially mm. a chance here. So, mm. uh, we we need to be as as um, humanitarian in in our response. And I, I yeah. said this all along: we need to to treat people in the same way that we hope our Irish citizens abroad can and will be treated in the future. Well, it's a great chance uh, for those who do qualify. Uh, About how many people would that be, Minister? Uh, Do you know uh, uh, roughly how many people should qualify? Well, unfortunately, given the nature of what we're talking about here, people are undocumented. I don't have an exact figure, but what I do know is based on research and engagement that's been carried out by the Migrant Rights Centre, we have an estimate of around 17,000 people, potentially 3,000 of those children. That number may be slightly higher, it may be slightly lower, um, but I suppose we, we will know as of 10 o'clock today and into the coming weeks the numbers of people that apply, and I think we need to obviously respond accordingly. But they're the figures that we have um, for the moment, but, but I think obviously we'll we see in the coming weeks whether that number increases or, or decreases at all. Okay, Minister, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who's Fine Gael TD for Maid East. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we'll hear lots uh, of uh, contributions uh, from uh, people who commemorated uh, Bloody Sunday yesterday later in uh, the programme. In fact, we'll talk about it in the next couple of minutes with Fergus O'Dowd because he's uh, the chair of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on the Implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement uh, and he's on uh, the line with us. Good morning to you, Fergus. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today, as always. Before we talk uh, about Bloody Sunday, maybe we talk uh, about uh, the jobs blow in Drogheda. Uh, people would have heard on Friday that Hilton Foods is to let 77 people go. That's out of a, a workforce of some 317, about a quarter of the workforce. Uh, it's a significant blow for those individuals losing their jobs, but for the town's uh, employment uh, as well. It is, of course, and it's the worst time of the year. And I mean, families who've had Christmas bills coming in now after Christmas it's probably the most difficult time to face with the, with, the, with the possibility or the probability of becoming redundant and Hilton Foods they're a very big company internationally I think they employ over 5,000 people right across the world so it appears we were communicated by Michael Little who's the managing director of Hilton Ireland and he said that they've had a full review of their business and operations across the company uh, but Drogheda is going to take this huge hit and it's it's very difficult for all the workers down there to have this uncertainty and obviously the 77 who are going to lose their jobs. Um, you know, it's really shocking at this time. Mm. Now, what, what I have been in touch, obviously, 
when I got news of this, I've been in touch with the Tornish's office and they are in touch with the company, uh, you know, to ensure that all possible routes to save or protect or to make sure that if there are redundancies, that every effort is made to have the least number of them and and so on. And I've also been in contact with Mr. Little and I'll meet him shortly to discuss it. But the truth is, you know, it's, it's a decision by a private company. I understand their main, from reading the papers, their main, the main uh, client in Ireland is Tesco. So, but like, I mean, clearly they've reviewed and made this decision and it's unlikely they'll turn it back now. Right. You'd wonder what's at the root of it. Is, uh, it I don't know, Michael. Why, I, I mean, there's obviously a drop in demand from Tesco, but is that as a result of the success of other supermarkets, uh, particularly the two German ones, uh, which uh, seem to be steaming ahead and creating a, a lot of jobs? Uh, and maybe uh, it's a give and take thing where those jobs have been created, they're being lost, uh, because there's a lot of jobs, actually, it would seem, that have gone from Hilton Foods. It's almost half the workforce that will be in place uh, when uh, these cuts are made. Uh, the Irish Times was reporting uh, on Friday that uh, they had 380 people working at the plant. That went to 317 and it's now going to go to 240. Yes, but if you look at their website, you see that they were advertising for new workers and indeed for new skilled people in their company up to two, three months ago. Um, they also apparently they use Drogheda as their UK as part of their UK supply centre as well. But I, I, I would certainly would hope to get that detail. But ultimately, the company makes its decision, and that's the economy we live in. Uh, and obviously, as you say there, there is a, there are serious changes in the supermarket business right now. With other other than Tesco, obviously making big job gains, particularly announced, I think, in the last week or so. So the reality is, consumers have a choice: what supermarket they go to and what they buy. But the job, the guy that has a job in Hilton, he 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 wants to keep his job, and he he's done nothing wrong. And obviously, he's he's suffering right now, or she's suffering right now. But all I can say, we'll keep. I will be meeting the company director, Mike Little, and also I will be talking. Obviously, I have already been speaking to the Tornish's office and I'll be talking to him personally about it as well. Okay. All right. Uh, well, I'm sure everybody's best wishes are, are with uh, those uh, who are about to lose uh, their jobs. And uh, it is uh, obviously of uh, concern to the local economy at, uh, for that matter. Uh, can we talk a, a little bit uh, about course, yeah. Bloody Sunday? We're 50 years on since uh, the worst uh, atrocity uh, in Irish history, many would argue. Uh, and uh, the families continue to look for justice in the face of the British government uh, suggesting that there should be an amnesty for all those involved in Bloody Sunday and all of the atrocious events that took place during the times of the Troubles. Yes, and I think that's caused huge concern right across the whole country and uh, all political groups, all political parties that I'm aware of, um, you know, certainly are not happy with that. And uh, clearly the Good Friday Committee, we we invited the British ambassador into our meeting to talk about the British government proposals and he turned us down last week. Uh, That's not in the public domain, it's only just we only got a letter from him this week saying that he wouldn't be coming in. We're very disappointed with that and we'll be communicating when the committee meets this week our views on that to him. Mm. And was um, there a reason given for that? 
Well, he just said he would be coming in, Michael. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he did offer. He did offer to uh, to communicate separately with us uh, in a separate way, like in writing or whatever. But look, if the ambassador doesn't want to come in and hear the the voice of the people of the country, north and south, well, that's that's very disappointing. Uh, and obviously, clearly, I, I would be unhappy with that, but we can't compel him to come in. Um, but the key point is that it's hugely important that we here in the South particularly tell the British government that anybody who committed any crime, whether it's, you know, one side or the other, you know, they must all should be subject to, to investigation and to, you know, to, 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 to criminal proceedings if such are deemed to be warranted. Mm. Now, after 50 years, and I would say Bloody Sunday was a war crime, it's absolute war crime. Like when you talk to people up there and see the very confined space where it all happened, it was just the soldiers were absolutely out of control. They were the wrong, they were the, the parachute regiment, you know, they were, the, the, no, they were just appalling the evil of what they did um, and they clearly murdered all these people and there's no doubt about that at all no doubt at all But do you think that the Paris were acting unilaterally or do you think that they had the, com- the command or, or, or the blessing of the British government? Well it's quite clear that the commander of the British forces uh, at that time I think his name was I think his name his surname was Ford was in Derry on that day it's also clear that the head of, of the RUC at that time um, was, I think he, he was a guy by the name of Lennon, if I'm correct, but he was opposed to what happened there in fairness to him. Um, and a lot of people were extremely worried about the tension that was building up. And it was a march. There were tens of thousands of people at it, and they, mm. their only objective was to protest against internment in a democratic uh, march, which was what they did. And the soldiers, right, there was a riot, there was stone throwing, there was obviously aggression. Um, but that didn't mean that people had to be murdered. And, you know, I've met with, I was previously in Derry some months ago, and we met with some of the families then at that time, particularly in the museum uh, there about Bloody Sunday. And the photographs are very clear. You see, you know, and you meet the people there, and the trauma and the upset is still there after all these years, and it will never go away. If 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 uh, if the perpetrators and the known perpetrators, if this soldier F, um, you know, is, is is free as a bird right now, and the other thing that was upsetting people yesterday was that um, that the parachute regiment flag was flying in the part of Derry, not not obviously clearly in the bog side, but in a different part of Derry, and that was creating its own commentary and tension as well. In other words, you know, like. You know, it's just aggravating people and unnecessary and cruel thing to do as well. Yeah. Um, do you think um, that what happened in Derry and elsewhere, uh, and Derry the focus, not just because of uh, the anniversary and the events of uh, the weekend, but uh, the Savile report and the apology uh, given on behalf of uh, the British government uh, by David Cameron, do you think, though, that uh, that the government had some uh, involvement in what was happening there and elsewhere, and that this would have been known uh, to uh, those in uh, the very top echelons of British power. Uh, I think Edward Heath was the Prime Minister at the time, wasn't he? He was. Like, I, I, but I mean, Heath was a, was a died-in-the-wool Tory, you know. Uh, but obviously, whoever the British Prime Minister at at, at any time is, is very important. Just right now, it's Prime Minister Johnson is responsible for this change in British policy in the Stormont House Agreement, which was signed up to by all the parties and governments 
not, not so long ago. So changes, unilateral changes, that's changes by one side mm. on any agreement are unacceptable, particularly when you're dealing with something as sensitive as as murders in the streets of Derry and Belfast and so on, whether it's by the IRA or by the British Army or whoever. Um, but I, I, as regards political direction, I, I, I don't truthfully know the answer to that, mm. but clearly there was military direction to, to let them loose, and indeed the Parachute Regiment also went in and murdered a number of people as well in, 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 in Ballymurphy, yeah. and we've been to Ballymurphy, met with the families there as well, mm. and the pain of the suffering. Dreadful atrocity, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I mean, here we are 50 years on, I think we're all getting old when you think about, about uh, Bloody Sunday being 50 years ago, and uh, many will remember the 25th anniversary, we might even hear from Seamus Heaney later in uh, the programme. Uh, but uh, around the time of uh, the 25th anniversary, Edward Heath really uh, annoyed people uh, because uh, it was around the time of Tiananmen Square. Uh, and uh, Edward Heath said uh, at the time uh, that uh, the civil authority was being defied in t- Tiananmen Square, uh, and that's why uh, the Chinese government took action about it. Very well, he said, we can criticise it in exactly the same way as people criticise Bloody Sunday. Right. Well, I think I think the point is that Tiananmen Square was we don't know how many people uh, were murdered there again. Yeah. I think in the, in, the, in the universities in Hong Kong, which they've taken down, it, it, there was a memorial to, they believe, hundreds who died there. Uh, but they, they don't actually know. But we don't know how many were murdered in Ireland by all sides over the years. And we know that all of the families, whether wherever they come from, on whatever side they were politically on, none of them want what's happening now. They, 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 they want the investigations to continue and for people to be held accountable. And that's the strong policy, I think, of everybody that, that I meet. And, um, you know, we're hoping now, I know we're in an election situation in the North, and obviously there's, there's you know, people have different views on what will happen there. But, um, no, there are changes, there's changed leadership in, in the DUP, and as you know, one of your good friends of mine, Jim Wells, was deselected over the weekend. Yeah, um, we're going to be speaking uh, to him in about 10 minutes' time. Uh, it's right, after, okay. after 46 years in politics, uh, right. they yeah, shut the door in his face. A carpet bagger who <laughs> What's that? Or rather, he, he kicked him out of his constituency, and Mr. Poots, mm. yeah. uh, I'm looking for his boots. <laughs> playing another game somewhere else but look I mean I'm mm. only saying that too closely I mean but the, the problem is that the moderate unionism and uh, you know what I find on the Good Friday Committee is that we work with you know we obviously we want unionists to come into our meetings and we can't they won't come in but we do meet them you know in other places and um, you know and I just sort of feel that the middle ground in the north that's people like Alliance and the SDNP and so on there was a hope, uh, and the UUP, the LCU, that they would grow stronger uh, in this election. And, you know, I wouldn't entirely say that's out of the question. And the more moderate views you have on either side, the more your chance you have of reconciliation and coming together in the future. And I think that obviously down the road, you know, is what we all want. Um, but clearly it's still a price that isn't there. And, um, you know, the, the, you know, this election that's coming now is going to be very fraught, I think. I think so. All right. Listen, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us today as well. That's uh, Fergus O'Dowd, who's a Fine Gael TD for Louth and East Meath and uh, the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. 
on Friday you'd have heard us uh, speaking with Emma Duffy Emma's father had died in Dalgan House nursing home he was one of the 23 residents who died from Covid and she was telling us uh, about uh, how the families feel after listening uh, to Micheál Martin saying uh, that uh, there will not be a commission of inquiry into what happened in Dalgan House. I just wanted to thank somebody who texted in on Friday and we didn't uh, get to the text uh, because our texter wanted to thank Emma for her bravery and courage speaking on behalf of those who lost their loved ones in Dalgan House. She says I also lost a family member in Dalgan House myself uh, during that time and living with this honestly feels like I'm living with an open wound. We need more people behind us supporting the plea. Thank you LMFM for giving us this voice. More people need to realise that those who died are not just nursing home residents. They're mothers, fathers, grandparents, brothers, sisters and friends and they are hugely missed and they deserve justice. Thank you indeed. Uh, just wanted to go back on that uh, because uh, it was uh, somewhat negligent of us not to get to it on Friday. A lot of people in touch with us about uh, Bloody Sunday and says she doesn't believe that there will ever truly be peace in Northern Ireland because the hatred runs too deeply in some groups for them to ever be able to put their differences aside. It'll be passed down from generation to generation for years to come. It's heartbreaking, she says. Tommy in touch with us too, saying the quest for justice for those who were murdered on Bloody Sunday must continue. They were innocent people who were gunned down in cold blood. They deserve justice and their families deserve to have their loss and suffering acknowledged. Another text to us uh, or call to us today rather uh, from Harry who was in touch with us about uh, the Russian military exercises off uh, the Irish coast. He says fair play to the fishermen for taking the stance that they did and for not being bullied by the Russians or by the government. It's bizarre to think that a group of fishermen managed to make more inroads and in having the Russians change their plans than our government officials were able to do. Mary in touch too, saying uh, she was disappointed uh, that President Michael D. Higgins didn't attend the Bloody Sunday memorial events in person while his virtual speech was excellent and full of passion. Mary thinks it would have sent a much stronger message to have had him there in person, adding his voice to the call for justice and to let the families know that the people of the country fully back them in their quest for justice. A similar comment to that from Fiona in Dundalk, who says the fact that our president chose to attend a Holocaust memorial in Dublin instead of travelling to Derry for the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday speaks volumes about how important he feels uh, the atrocity was. Uh, thanks uh, Fiona. I think uh, the President uh, would have thought uh, it was a, a real atrocity but I understand what you're saying. Jim and Navin says the Queen knighted the leader of the murder squad on Bloody Sunday. Hope they'll rescind this and uh, it should not have been given away. Thank you Jim and Navin. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South Down, joins us. Good morning to you, Jim. Thanks uh, for taking the time to be with us. Uh, you had uh, some bad news on Friday, I think. Uh, did it come as a surprise to you? When did you find out uh, that you'd been deselected? I suppose I found out about a week ago, but it was made public on Thursday night. I had a very difficult um, interview for the selection process to stand on South Down. I knew that that interview hadn't gone well. I was likely not to be selected, and that was proven to be true. After 46 years? Yes, 46 years, um, 27 years at Stormont as an MLA, 
17 years as a local councillor. Uh, I've held many, many positions within the party. And I have to say to you, it's been a, an extremely disappointing uh, news and a very difficult 72 hours. I'm sure it has. Um, it can't be easy for you. I mean, it's uh, been your life, uh, and I don't think there's uh, any understatement in that. Um, what do you think was the reason for it? You said it was a, a difficult interview. Uh, there must have been issues of contention between you and the party. Um, the party are looking for more female candidates, they're looking for younger candidates, um, and uh, uh, several older members, I suppose you could say, have been put out to grass. Um, the difficulty I have with it is that it's done on the glare of publicity. It's, it's announced in the media. Um, you're a top presenter, Mike, but someday you might decide you've had enough, but you're allowed to retire. Uh, and move off gracefully. And politics know you've got this awful glare of publicity, and uh, my career has crashed very publicly uh, in the glare of publicity. Okay. You're hurt by the sounds of it. Absolutely. It's, it's been a very hurtful experience. But, Mike, you know, Paul said that all political careers end in failure, and I suppose I was naive to believe that mine would be any different. Yeah. And sad person that I am, I can think of about 70 MLAs and MPs in my lifetime whose career has crashed either through scandal or they didn't get selected or they stood and didn't get elected. And look what happened to Fianna Foyle a few years ago. Look how, how many TDs were publicly humiliated when there was this, uh, they had this awful election result around, what, 2008? So I mean, it's part of the job. You have to expect it. And um, I couldn't dodge the bullet on this occasion. It's cutthroat. Um, it is. Yeah. Um, what's your relationship with, like, uh, with the party leader? No, I mean, I, I have remained. I met him on Friday. I will remain in good terms. I just have to accept, like, this. This, this is meant to be. Um, it, 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 it's. Um, it, it was always on the cards. Um, I'm just delighted that I didn't have any problems with my local association. They've backed me for all, all of this and given me their 100% support. That would have been the ultimate humiliation to have been rejected by your local party members. That most certainly hasn't happened. It's a selection panel made of 12 people in Belfast who've decided that um, it's time for me to go. Um, I still retain the support not only of the uh, local association, but the local supporters. Uh, I'm absolutely confident had I been allowed to stand again, I, I would have retained the seat as I've done for such a long time. Mm. You'd have retained the DUP seat. Uh, will you be seeking an election as an independent? I think the phrase we use here, we have, at the moment have no mm. plans okay. to run as an independent. I have thrown my weight behind Edwin Coates who uh, also put his name in for South Down, uh, the Agriculture Minister and a very experienced party member. And uh, he is going to the next stage with my blessing as the alternative candidate for South Down. Uh, and by doing that, of course, I, 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 I jettison all hope of ever standing again. OK. Uh, because uh, the, T- the DUP have put Mr Poots out uh, to graze, as you put it earlier as well. Well, well, they have, but there's, it's a two-stage process. The final decision is made by what's called the Party Central Executive Committee. The officers have made a recommendation that it's not either myself or Edwin, but Edwin is moving to the next stage, where I believe he's got quite a lot of support.
Okay. Um, uh, why is it, do you think, that uh, you're being put out to graze? Is it that your thinking is no longer in line with uh, the thinking of uh, the DUP? You have often been seen as a hardliner. Yes, I think that's fair enough. And I've also been seen as a traditional, old-fashioned DUP person who has always sort of campaigned uh, on a pro-life, pro-marriage stance. And some people think that uh, it's time to move on. And other people said maybe I've, I've spoken too often on that issue. Um, and both myself and Edwin are very much in that section of the party. And they've maybe decided they need to go for a younger image, female. I mean, it's always difficult to attract female candidates to stand uh, for all parties. And um, I was in a position where there was a, a younger female candidate um, who obviously impressed at the interview. I didn't think my interview went particularly bad, but I certainly could detect that I, it wasn't going well, you know, in the, in the sense that... Um, uh, it was quite antagonistic towards me, and so therefore I, I had a fair idea over Christmas that it wasn't going to go, it wasn't going to run. Mm. In what way was it antagonistic? Do you want to tell us that? Uh, was it over the social issues uh, that you take a position on? or no, was no, I think they were annoyed about my large amount of media um, uh, uh, interviews, and the husband a lot. Um, I think... Mm. Uh, I see you quite often on Virgin Media. Is it the interviews that you've been doing in the South? No, no, that's not so much Mm. the content, but just the fact that maybe done more than my fair share. Uh, I think they felt that they needed, uh, I suppose ultimately they needed a younger, um, broader-based range of candidates. And Mm. like every other party on the island of Ireland, it is always difficult to attract younger females to stand. And... uh, they took the chance to broaden the, the base, as it were, of the candidates. Mm. If your hardline stance was a problem, uh, is it right to say they're looking for more moderate candidates in terms of those social issues, uh, whether that's uh, gay relationships or marriage or abortion or whatever uh, the case may be? But is it also true uh, that they're looking for people who might have a mo- more moderate point of view uh, on Brexit, uh, on a border poll, on some of these other issues, such as voting for a Sinn Féin First Minister? I think you're right on the first aspect. I don't think the party's candidates will move one iota on Brexit or a border poll. Um, we're still resident against the protocol, and we certainly, there's not a, a scintilla of support for um, a United Ireland within, within the DUP. Um, if there was a border poll, we'd be campaigning vociferously remain within the UK um, so I wouldn't read that much into it. Uh, I just think all parties like to try and attract uh, more than just the, the, the middle-aged men in grey suits. Mm. Uh, I'm an older middle-aged man in a grey suit so maybe that hasn't helped me. Um, I don't really know the answer, I just know it's a, it's a bitterly disappointing decision. Okay, and one that's a, of concern to you personally as well, uh, because uh, of uh, the nursing home care that your wife receives. In Northern Ireland, if your home is worth more than £23,000, that's about, what, €27,000, uh, you pay your entire care home fees. I, I don't know what the situation is in the Irish Republic, those fees this year, £43,000 a year. Um, if you say it fast enough, it seems less. Um, that, that is quite a, you know, it's quite a large amount of money. And uh, at the moment, all of my salary at Stormont Plus Savings is going towards that. Uh, and I'm going to have to um, address that issue uh, when 
I'll use my second way. Mm. I read some interviews you gave over the weekend, Jim Wells, and you were saying that it, that might mean that you'll need to sell your house. And not at the minute, um, but eventually I think, yes, that's inevitable. Um, the, the system we have forces you eventually to sell the family home. Um, now, I, I can definitely, I'm going to be okay for, for a few years, but that's, and that's, that's going to happen, I'm sure. Um, a lot of emotional attachment to it, um, but I'm no different than thousands of others in exactly the same position. And um, that happens all the time. I had an aunt where we had to sell the family home to, to, to pay her care fees. And uh, that's the system. Uh, and we just have to accept that um, you know, my wife's in excellent care and it has to be paid for. Mm. Well, I had no idea that was the situation in in Northern Ireland. It's not the situation here. We've uh, what they call the fair deal scheme and a charge is applied to the house, uh, but that is at such time when the house is being sold on uh, or... Um, uh, there's uh, different elements to that fair deal scheme and payments can be made after death of uh, the patient. But it, it really runs to three years uh, of care. It's uh, capped at that, uh, but a very different situation there. And uh, well, as you I say... I tempted to move to the Irish Republic to avail of that, but I will say it's signed yeah. a much fairer system than the one that we have. Yeah, as you say, um, your situation is highlighting the situation of many other people. Oh, yes. And I mean, I've yeah. been fortunate for this last seven years that I have been able to basically take my entire salary and use it to pay for the care home fees and then live off um, my wife's small teacher's pension. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not asking for sympathy. I'm not pleading mm. poverty. I, that's just the situation I'm in. And uh, my wife has a serious stroke. She's had to move into care. It has to be paid for. And I still think she's getting great service. But, you know, it, it's my job to, to try and continue to pay that. I'm presumably going to have to get another job. Right. What will you do? I was going to ask you, after 46 years in politics, uh, when it all comes to an end in May, I presume, um, what, mm-hmm. will, what will you do when you get up in the morning? I have to say that's the big question. I'd like to continue some form of broadcasting, punditry, or um, I'd like to think this isn't my last interview on Rise FM. And I'd like to um, try and develop some role in, in particularly radio journalism. I, I like radio because I've got a face for radio. I therefore enjoy interviewing, even by the SIFRS interviewers like yourself. And uh, in fact, uh, maybe someday I'll take over the Mike Reed show. Would not be wonderful, and then have a fabulous salary across the border. <laughs> um, I, I, I. That's the difficult one because. For 46 years, my identity has been politics. And I'm going to lose that. And a lot of people who retire tell me that their identity was wrapped up in their job. Pretty men. And they find it very difficult when that identity is removed to try and recreate themselves. So I'm not exactly certain um, what, the, what the next step's going to be here. Um, and I haven't really had much time to think about it, if I've mm. been honest. Yeah, well, it's not what you planned for, obviously. And uh, I'm not sure if you've had time to reflect uh, or if you wish to share the highs and lows uh, of uh, the last 46 years if uh, there are issues uh, that come to mind the, the high the high was my topping the poll in 2001 in South Down the only unionist ever to do that very unusual situation and the low was losing my job as health mm. minister as a result of totally unfounded allegations in 2015 
um, that was a terribly low point. Um, uh, the fact that I've, my constituency association has stood by me the whole way through has been a high. The effect on my family life has been a low. And of course, uh, in my present situation, it has been a particularly ba- a balancing act between caring for my wife and continuing my political career. Mm. I must say, uh, it's peculiar uh, for me, I'm sure for the team here, uh, to think that Jim Wells won't be a, a, an MLA in South Down uh, after the next uh, election. I hope we didn't uh, feed into the thinking uh, that uh, you were doing too many media interviews, uh, but we've certainly talked <laughs> so many times over the years uh, that it has given us a great perspective and one that we've valued greatly. Uh, we didn't always uh, agree, uh, but we always valued your opinion and you sharing that opinion with us. Yeah, of course, you can. I can still be billed as the former MDUP MLA for South Down. Yeah. I still feel I have an insight into what's going up in, on in Northern Ireland. I've enjoyed my interviews with yourself. You know, I can see why you're one of the highest paid TV <laughs> presenters in the Irish Republic. It's a dreadful and, business, uh, obviously, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's so obvious to me why that's the case. And, um, you know, therefore, I'm hoping this isn't the end of the line because there are quite a few ex-politicians in the UK who have continued on as pundits, you know, commentators, uh, like Edwina Curry is, is a very famous one, Olympic Obak. So there might be a role there. Mm. I've also got strong links to the quarry industry, um, so I might pursue a career there. But it's going to be terribly hard. It mm. really is. And I'm fooling myself if I, if I don't believe that, you know, the next few months are going to be difficult, particularly when it's done on the glare of publicity. I mean, everybody in Northern Ireland now knows this, and it's on the front page of every paper, and I'll be doing interviews all day today throughout the country, TV and radio. All right, look, well, we wish you uh, the very best uh, with the future. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from you, not just here, but elsewhere for that matter. Uh, and uh, thank you for speaking so candidly with us uh, again this morning. Uh, and well, like, as, a, as somebody famously said, he hasn't gone away, you know. <laughs> Who was that? Thank you very much. Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for South Down. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the Russians are, are coming. Well, they're not. At least they're not coming as close as we would have want and once anticipated. And that seems uh, to be as a result of uh, the intervention of uh, the fishermen off uh, the southwest coast. Uh, but they're coming somewhere nearby, it would seem. Uh, let's talk about this and indeed uh, the ongoing situation in the Ukraine with independent Senator Jared Crockwell. A very good morning to you and thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme some success over the weekend uh, with uh, the Russians uh, agreeing to move these missile trials, these live fire trials. Uh, what do you make of that? Good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. Thank you for having me on. Uh, look, um, this was a provocative move by the Russians. As you know, there is um, a potentially a conflict situation developing on the borders of Ukraine right now, which is of concern to Europe, it's concern, of concern to anybody in the world, I guess. Uh, each country is entitled to its own uh, identity and to mind its own borders. So what the Russians did was they decided they'd look around Europe and the weak underbelly of Europe is Ireland, uh, or defence is in a mess. 
So they decided they'd steam down here and have a live firing exercise within our uh, economic zone. It's interesting, Michael, that they did not contact the Irish government and tell the Irish government we're coming down to uh, have a live firing exercise off the southwest coast of Cork. They told the British. And the British then told the Irish, uh, because Ireland has no way of managing its uh, economic zone. So ICAO, the people mm. who look after managing the skies, uh, assigned that part of uh, the seas to the UK and not to Ireland. Yeah, but who were they talking to? Was it the Irish or the British or the Americans? Uh, because uh, the trials are to take place over cables that connect uh, North America with uh, Europe. Absolutely. So they informed, they, they didn't ask anybody, they just informed the British, who are the overseers of that part of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, that we'll be down there and we'll be having a live firing exercise. That was it. There was no request or anything else. That's mm. just the way it works. We have these live firing exercises out in the Atlantic regularly, Michael. Mm. But this one was brought into sharp focus because of the fact of the situation in uh, um, the Ukraine. And a a dispute uh, with the Americans over that. Uh, And I I take it that the threat is uh, the wherewithal to disconnect America from Europe. Yes, indeed. Well, I mean, if any of those cables get severed, uh, it would have severe uh, implications for the entire economy of the world, not just Europe. Um, uh, If you were to sever them all, uh, I, I just dread to think what would happen. We would ha- still have satellite communication, but the amount of data that passes through or close to Ireland is uh, literally unbelievable. It's what keeps the world's wheels rolling. Mm, we go uh, back. So, we go back to yeah. the days of huge seas between countries, rather than this global village that we're living in because of uh, these uh, subsea communication cables. Uh, but. Uh, Having said that, uh, the Russian trials are perfectly legitimate, aren't they, under international law? Absolutely, absolutely, Michael. Any naval service that wants to carry out live firing exercises can do it. The only requirement is that they notify uh, the ICAO uh, representative, Mm. in this case it would be the UK, that we will be in a certain location and we will be firing live ammunition. Please tell people to keep away. And what is that that live ammunition that we're talking about? I mean, when we talk about these missiles, uh, what what is uh, the capability uh, of uh, these weapons? Uh, I mean, are we talking, uh, in effect... uh, about things that amount to bombs that could blow up buildings and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, We're talking about missiles that have um, uh, uranium tips on them that can penetrate uh, heavy armour. So essentially the ones they would have been firing down there would have been what we might call light armaments insofar as they would um, be capable of sinking a ship. Um, they would have the capability of long-range um, missiles as well. We're not sure mm. what uh, submarines are going to be down there because, of course, we can't see under the sea. We've never invested in sonar, so we don't know what's uh, travelling up and down the west coast of Ireland and mm. never have. Um, okay. My, my co- do you, do you, do you, so, so I take it uh, from what you said uh, about uh, Irish Defence Forces uh, being a, in a mess, you want us to invest in things like sonar, do you want us to invest in things like submarines and uranium-tipped missiles? 
No. What I want us to do is I want us to be in a position to detect anything that travels through our sea or over our country. So we need primary radar, we need uh, sonar systems, and then we need to beef up the defence forces and uh, give them the resources they need to manage the country. We're never going to be able to stop anybody Mm. coming into this country if they choose to do that. But what we do need to know is what people are doing outside of it or around us or over it in order that we can put uh, facilities in place. We've just suffered a major cyber attack uh, that's going to cost this country probably a billion by the time it's finished. Mm. So we really do need to up our game. We wouldn't worry the Russians. What what would be the point in upping our game? We up our game in order that we're aware of what's happening. Uh, For example, the the, uh, undersea cables that you're talking about, Mm. we need to monitor those. We need to be able to see exactly what's going on down there. It is possible nowadays to tap into these cables uh, to for espionage purposes, and if that's going on, we need to be aware of it. Um, so it's more about informing ourselves and being on top of a potential, uh, uh, I suppose, conflict potential uh, issues that may co- hit our economy and hit us hard. Uh, we need to be aware that these things are happening. Mm. Right now, we and have our how would we? How would that awareness protect us? Uh, like, what would it achieve? We'd know that it's going to happen, or that it had happened, but what would we be able to do to prevent it? We would be able to put in countermeasures straight away. For example, if we found that a cable had been interfered with, we would be able to divert Uh, all traffic away from that cable while an investigation took place to see what what, uh, actually was going on with the cable. Uh, So that's really the sort of area that it would be about isolating incidents so as the minimum damage to the country would take place. Okay. All right. Uh, Do do, do we know? We haven't heard uh, where the trials are, are going to take place now, have we? No, we haven't, and we're mm. waiting to find out. Where yeah, they, they, they wouldn't have assume. to, but they wouldn't have to go very far to be out of that economic zone, and they could be more or less in the same place. That's right. We assume they're going to be maybe 100, 150 miles further to the west. But it's not going to be a huge amount. Right now, this morning, they're off the coast of Scotland. They're refuelling up there and they will probably uh, steam down the Irish Sea and uh, um, out into the Atlantic then um, through the English Channel. Okay. Uh, interesting days ahead. Uh, very strange days ahead. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, though. Thank you indeed, Independent Senator Gerard Crockwell. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, St. Patrick's Day will be celebrated uh, this year and uh, with uh, the celebration of all things Irish, uh, there will be politicians travelling from uh, this country to every corner of uh, the earth uh, as would have always been uh, the case. And, of course, uh, the highlight will be in uh, America for uh, the meeting of uh, the Taoiseach and the American President in the White House. But is there more that this country can do than deliver bowls of shamrock to the Irish in America. This is a question that Sinn Féin TD Johnny Gurk has been asking. Uh, Johnny Gurk is on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, there's a, a sense uh, of abandonment to some extent amongst the Irish in America, apparently. Uh, good morning, Michael. Um, yeah, um I would be t- I would be in regular contact, Michael, with a good lot of people in, in especially in Boston. I lived for uh, many years, and uh, they 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 feel let down by the by the by the government that we don't seem to be highlighting issues as reg- especially issues uh, regarding the undocumented. The the largest Irish organisation in America, 
the ancient order of Hibernians came out last week and said that the Irish government weren't engaging enough in, in Irish-American affairs. And a former Fine Gael MTD, uh, John DCC, said that um, that the government need to get back to basics as regards um, uh, issues of regarding Irish America, you know. So um, definitely, um, I believe, um, um, Michael, that the Irish government is not doing enough as regards to the undocumented Irish in America. Is there anything ironic uh, about you making these comments uh, today, the day that the government has launched this scheme for undocumented persons living in Ireland? Yeah, well, I was listening to that, um, Michael, your interview with um, Helen McEntee earlier on, and, you know, that's something to be welcomed, and, and that's something that we would want for the Irish in America, you know, whether it's an amnesty, whether it's a visa. I, I myself, Michael, um, availed of a Morrison visa in, in, in um, the 90s in, in, in America, you know, so um, since then, um, I don't believe, Michael, might have been uh, the Walsh visas came in after that, but in 30 years, Michael, there wouldn't have been any uh, visa programme for the undocumented in America. Um, one fellow, Michael, um, he, he sent me a message there after um, when I raised him the doll um, the other day and he said um, he's there 25 years he's, he, he's a wife he has two kids and um, he said uh, that his his parents are getting old um, he, it'll break his heart but he'll probably end up having to move home next year you know um, because um, they're not they're not regularised uh, over there another another young fella Michael um, a couple of years ago um, he's, he's from County Mead um, his brother died he was, he was 40 years of age he couldn't come home for that funeral and last year Michael his father died and he didn't come home for that funeral he has two kids in America Michael and uh, the danger was he wouldn't get back to them kids if he came home you know mm, yeah, well I think Donald Trump would have uh, searched them down and thrown them out uh, if he had had the opportunity. It may be a different attitude uh, with the change in administration. Of course, uh, Joe Biden identifies himself uh, as uh, uh, certainly of Irish descent, if not Irish for that matter. Yeah, Michael, and yeah, like I mean, he is Irish American, um, a democratic president. Um, you have a democratic House of Representatives, and you have a democratic Senate. Um, so I believe, Michael, and, and immigration is one of them, um, supposedly one of Joe uh, Biden's uh, priorities when he went into um, government or when he became uh, president. So I believe there is the best opportunity, Michael, we had in a long, long time to move this issue forward. And my my job, Michael, as a lot of my own friends are over there, is to highlight this as much as possible. And and uh, the reason Michael bring it up now is because the Irish um, the, with the thing with St. Patrick's Day it's probably the best opportunity you have to keep it on the agenda you know yeah, Well absolutely uh, it's a, a unique opportunity uh, and it's great to have it back a, again assuming that uh, the White House meeting will take place uh, this year uh, but there will certainly be plenty of uh, events with Irish ministers travelling uh, across uh, the United States uh, for that matter uh, and I'm sure that uh, that will be a, a message uh, that uh, they'll be bringing with them uh, I imagine that will be the case particularly with uh, the Joe Biden administration would you think so? Yeah, Michael, I'll tell you, yeah. Michael, um, there's E3 legislation there um, that uh, was brought forward last year. It was passed in the in the House of Representatives. Now, it failed in the Senate, but it only failed by um, by one vote, you know, and so that could be that could be expedited. And there is um, there is provision in the House of Representatives to expedite that. Now, what that means, Michael, was um, that there was 10,500 visas per year issued to Australians and a bilateral agreement between mm. Australia and America. And the Australians weren't using up those visas, Michael. So what we were asking was that those visas be issued to um, Irish citizens living in America, you know? So, and and that almost passed. Now it, it passed the House of Representatives, and it was um, it was defeated in the Senate by one vote. So that needs to be um, brought up again, even if it has to be tweaked a little bit to get that one senator on board, you know? Okay. 
All right, interesting stuff. We leave it there though, and thank you for joining us with that. That's uh, Sinn Fein TD for Mead West, Johnny Girk. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Along Glen Sheen and Glen and the cold woods of Hillhead, a wet wind in the hedges and a dark cloud on the mountain, and flags like black frost mourning that the 13 men were dead. The row wept at Dungiven and the foil cried out to heaven. Burnt Tullet's old wound opened and again the bogside bled. By Shipkey Gate I shivered and by Lone Moor I inquired where I might find the coffins where the thirteen men lay dead. My heart besieged by anger, my mind a gap of danger. I walked among their old haunts, the home ground where they bled. And in the dirt lay justice like an acorn in the winter, till its oak would sprout in Derry where the thirteen men lay dead. Seamus Heaney reciting his Road to Derry on the 25th anniversary of Bloody Sunday in 1997. 25 years later, the 50th anniversary, heard tribute made to those who died. 14 people ultimately lost their lives and many more were injured as a result of what unfolded on the streets of Derry that day. As we listen to their names being recited with deep sadness today, we remember them and those tragic events not simply as history on a page, but as part of the living memory of so many of the people of this city and indeed of this island. Just as the families of those lost that day have done throughout their long years of campaigning, We remember, too, all of the families who lost loved ones to violence during the Troubles. President Michael D. Higgins paying tribute to the families of the dead and their campaign for justice. Let me pay tribute to those who have made and continue to make it possible for us to stand in this ceremony of memory and solidarity with you today. The families and neighbours of those who lost their lives in Derry all those years ago those who in a relentless pursuit of truth stood in solidarity with you during your long campaign to vindicate the memories of your loved ones. Your campaign required overturning those forces who sought to avoid the necessary truth of what took place and evade accountability. Forces that stood between you and your efforts to overturn, for example, the historic grievous wrong of the Widgery Tribunal. Let us recall and acknowledge that an important outcome of that campaign against what was an enforced amnesia was the Savile Report and the significance, let us recognise it, that is attached to achieving the fundamental acknowledgement in it that what happened that day was unjustified and unjustifiable. The 50th Bloody Sunday memorial speech was given on Saturday by the former British Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn. It's because of those that fought for justice from that day to this, those who kept the pressure up, despite the disgraceful whitewash of the Widgery Tribunal, that we finally saw some of the truth emerge from the Savile Inquiry and the British government in the person of David Cameron forced to make a substantial statement to Parliament on that day. The movement for justice was centred here in Derry, of course, but it was also international, just as the world watched Derry 
on the day of the funeral of those 13, the world watched Derry on the day of that result. Something people may not know, that there were many other de demonstrations around the world. A week after Bloody Sunday, we organised a march in London from Kilburn to Whitehall, carrying mock coffins to lay at the gate of Downing Street, to lay there for the then Prime Minister to see. And uh, we marched there, and uh, I was one of the people that, when we arrived in Trafalgar Square, was arrested as part of a whole gang of a lot of other people being arrested. And um, a lot of us were convicted, and then we appealed our convictions, and um, I won my appeal with the assistance of a little-known um, barrister called Michael Mansfield, who has done fantastic service for justice then, now, and so many other occasions. But it was that sense of solidarity of people all around the world and all around Britain that I think made a very big difference. I guess if you didn't know that, you might have been asking why it was uh, that Jeremy Corbyn was asked to make this keynote speech. My name is Minty Thompson, and I'm a director of the Bloody Sunday Trust, who have organised this very important series of events to mark the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. I am also the daughter of Kathleen Thompson, a mother of six children who was murdered in the back garden of our home 50 years ago last November. So I know, like the Bloody Sunday families and so many others, what it's like to live with the enduring pain caused by the violence of our conflict. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming our very special guest to deliver the annual Bloody Sunday lecture. Our guest today is someone who has proven throughout his long career that he fully recognises the truth of our theme. One world, one struggle. Someone who has always taken a stand with the oppressed and against inequality and injustice. He has campaigned against apartheid in South Africa and for freedom in Palestine. He has opposed the unjust wars, successive British governments and supported progressive regimes around the world. He was one of the few members of the British Parliament to take a genuine interest in what was happening in Ireland and supported the campaigns to release the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four. He worked for peace in Ireland at a time when it was very unpopular to do so, recognising that all sides needed to be involved if the conflict was to end. He has always been a good friend to the Bloody Sunday families and has taken part in many events in support of their campaign for truth and justice. So it is fitting that he is here today for such an important event. And Bloody Sunday family member Tony Doherty remembered Corbyn's support over the many years in, uh, that have taken place since 1972. The, the first time I met Jeremy um, was in 1992. It was January 1992. And uh, he uh, booked a room in Westminster for the launch of, of the first book. 
it sort of set the tone in a sense and set the pace for the Bloody Sunday Relatives uh, campaign, which was to follow uh, onwards. So the first time we met was in the street outside the Houses of Westminster. And uh, I reminded him of it this morning. Um, and he remembered it, and he says, we were young and foolish then. And I said, well, I was young. <laughs> um, Jeremy has been a great friend to the families, to the people of Derry, and to the cause of peace and justice in, in, in Ireland. And when, when, he, when he did that, he, he was accused of uh, supporting violence. And when he stood up for civil liberties in, in Britain and throughout the world, they called him a, a, a pinko. And when he stood for workers' rights, they called him a communist, which, by the way, isn't the worst of the insults. <laughs> um, however, when, when, when he stood up and still does stand with the Palestinian people, they called him a racist. And the establishment has a habit of turning truth on its head. And I'm glad that, that Jeremy mentioned Palestine in, a, in his speech, because uh, it's, it's a cause that's very dear to my heart, and I'm sure in, in the hearts of everybody here today. So the, what I'm going to present them with is a, a symbol of liberation, which is now uh, worldwide, and uh, which has been emblazoned with the Palestinian colours. Corbyn wasn't uh, the only British politician to condemn what happened on Bloody Sunday, but those who did were met with resistance. But every single obstacle was put in the way of those seeking justice, trying to find their way to the truth. The victims were blamed. The media got hold of the story. The army press releases and the briefings that went on, they were blamed for being victims, like somehow or other, it was their fault they were there and shot dead by soldiers. A tribunal was established to try and vindicate the killers, compounding the injustice. Records and guns were destroyed. D-notices to prevent discussion in the media were issued and the dead were vilified. These insults to the bereaved were allowed to continue for decades. Remember, it was 50 years ago tomorrow since Bloody Sunday, but it's only been 12 years since that unambiguous exoneration of all of those victims. All of those years, there was this question mark that somehow or other, the victims were the guilty ones. But of course, the statement by the Prime Minister does not equal justice. So while we're here today to remember the lives lost, there are still some, including many in Westminster, who want to put justice out of reach and secure immunity for those who committed crimes in the service of the British state with the deployment here in Northern Ireland. Those people stand in defiance of our common humanity we must never shrink from holding to account apologists for brutality and murder. 
Brutality and murder, an awful atrocity and a lot of people tried to put into words exactly how awful the events of 1972 were. The actor Adrian Dunbar said it was difficult to describe the depth of feeling. The emotion is palpable in the city today, there's no doubt. So you're all very welcome this afternoon to this remembrance 50 years on from the events of Bloody Sunday. I'd particularly like to thank the families of those killed for organising and allowing those of us from beyond the city to participate in what was to become a moment the world would watch in anguish and horror. Bloody Sunday, one of the darkest days since the foundation of Northern Ireland, Derry's Sharpville, a hammer blow from a callous and cruel government designed to squeeze the sense of freedom out of the people of Derry and to choke the struggle for civil rights for all, regardless of political hue. And let us reflect on the enormity of their loss for their families and for their neighbourhoods. The Taoiseach, Michal Martin, uh, was one of uh, the people who left the South to go to Derry to remember those who lost their lives on Bloody Sunday. Privilege for me and humble to be here um, with the families of the victims of Bloody Sunday uh, on the 50th anniversary uh, of a, a terrible atrocity um, where 14 people lost their lives uh, and so many were injured. And um, I met with the uh, trust there this morning uh, and with, with, with family. Uh, and I think the what I said to them was to thank them for their uh, extremely dignified, persistent and courageous um, campaign to pursue university principles uh, of justice and truth and accountability. And uh, I really believe that the, when I was here, when I was Minister of Foreign Affairs in the context of the uh, Savile Inquiry and the uh, apology from Prime Minister David Cameron at the time, which vindicated the campaign of the families and their long, long struggle. It was too long in many respects, but they did it and they continue to do it uh, to seek accountability. Uh, and we're here in solidarity, uh, <coughs> primarily with the families uh, who lost loved ones, and we can never lose sight of that. Um, and um, I thank them just there again uh, for their contribution to truth justice. The Taoiseach Michal Martin representing government on Sunday. The leader of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou Macdonald, also walked with the Bloody Sunday families. I I think uh, today is about the resilience and dignity of Derry and of these families. But I think today is uh, about the future as well. There's a message from Derry around progress and peace and the future a message to to the British government that amnesties and impunity for British soldiers isn't acceptable. But this is a day of dignity, of sadness for the families too, but of of great hope as well, because uh, we overcame. They overcame. Derry will always move forward. This is a very human moment. um, And I think this is an expression by the families of Bloody Sunday, of what is possible when you persevere, of the dignity of families and of community. And I think that is a a universal thing. And I think we need to recognize that and 
respect and celebrate it. That's Marilyn MacDonald. It's 50 years since uh, the 30th of uh, January 1972, but for as long as uh, there has not been justice for the dead, the 14 people who lost their lives as a result of the events of Bloody Sunday will always be remembered. We honour the men who died and we continue to honour them into the future by our continued commitment to the rights that were won at such great cost. We do so best by protecting these rights won and sustaining the principled and inclusive peace that we have built together. Let us all celebrate that in transcending all the darkness and the wrongs, the exclusions today, Derry stands as a beacon of hope and justice, of battling and succeeding against the odds, a peace and a people with an inclusive achievement of dignified and respectful ethical remembering. That is your legacy, and the legacy of those who lost their lives on that day, Bloody Sunday, and on subsequent days. It is a contribution to be sustained and extended. The either warrior, Shirkan Shiri Dananaka, may they rest in peace. Divsha Eliak, Verbanak Dontauki. That's uh, the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins. Now, before we leave you today, let me bring you some comments. Anthony in RD says, on this day when our doors are to be thrown even more open and without any knowledge of the people coming here, shouldn't we remember that not long ago we had an incident uh, which uh, involved people from out of uh, this jurisdiction who were born elsewhere? Thanks, uh, Tony. I'm sure uh, you've got that kind of thing uh, all of the time and probably always will. But uh, just to reiterate, uh, the minister said that anybody who, uh, who has given this amnesty is going to be vetted by the Gardaí. So hopefully uh, there won't be any worries uh, along the lines uh, that you've been expressing in your text. Thanks, though, to everybody who's been in touch with us today. That's our programme. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 